Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Prospect Magazine's podcast. I'm Tom Clark and this week we invite you to the political carnival that was party conference season. Labour and the Conservatives have both had their big top events, but what have we learned, if anything, about the condition of both parties? Thornbury's, um, she said, I was watching her speech and she said, what is it, no passeran. What was it, was that something? I had no idea what that meant and it came across as bonkers, again, like Boris. We'll have that out in the studio and we'll also take you inside the secure zone of the Conservative conference with an audio postcard from Birmingham. Dear Boris, I know him very well. I'm not sure that his current contribution is really very helpful. But before that, I'm joined here in the studio by Samir Rahim, our culture editor, Steph Boland, who's our head of digital, and Steve Bloomfield, who's our deputy editor. Um, All of us have either been at, or at least in your case, Samir, uh, aware of, for better or worse, um, the party um, conferences. Glue to the screen. (laughs) Glue to a screen. (laughs) Uh, holding the fort. Um, Steph, first of all, first impressions. Well, we keep hearing from Theresa May that nothing has changed, something which she's trying to spin as a positive. And my main impression from party conference season is that indeed nothing has changed and neither party can be enormously happy with this. We entered party conference season with the polls deadlocked between Labour and Tories and also deadlocked between Leave and Remain. And the sense I got both in Liverpool and in Birmingham is that nobody knows when and how this might shift in a positive direction for any faction of any party on any topic. So tense all around, I think. Um, Steve, I mean, it sort of felt like a relief in Liverpool, didn't it? Just because it had been such an awful summer for Labour. And... uh, in a sense, that was enough. Just the fact it wasn't as awful as the summer for the commentary to say, oh, actually, it's not not so bad. And I think you can say the same about the Conservative Party conference as well. I think both parties came into these conferences a little worried about what was going to happen. Uh, would anti-Semitism uh, overshadow the events in Liverpool uh, and the potential splits and the rows over Brexit? Uh, and, of course, in Birmingham... Uh, would Boris Johnson and their various rows over Brexit overshadow what Theresa May hoped to achieve? And I think actually, oddly, I think both Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May will come out of these conferences feeling pretty okay. Uh, They both gave speeches that were better than they've given in the past, and that's a low bar for both of them, uh, particularly Theresa May after last year. Um, They both have a bit more support within the party for their preferred Brexit policies. Um, 
we'll see what that actually means for Theresa May in the long term or even in the short term with that last more than a week. Well, maybe the, the preferred Brexit ambiguity. Yes. Yeah, I think ambiguity is probably a better word than, than policy. Um, and I think so. So both the leaderships will come out of it feeling a little bit better than when they went in. The big question is, though, and I think this alludes to what Steph was saying about the polls, is whether any of it actually matters for voters. And it's, you know, it's all very well, you know, me talking about what I thought of party conference, you know, having spent six days in a combination of Liverpool and Birmingham, mainly in in conference centres. But actually, you know, Samir, you were not there at all. And so you just saw it through newspapers, TV, bits here and there. And I imagine you got a very different, uh, you had very different reflections. Yes, it's strange, isn't it? I mean, I watched Boris Johnson's speech yesterday on the television, and I have to say that it came across as slightly bonkers. Um, it, um, it seemed to be wowing the faithful, but that, you know, this would be cheering for the worst lines, and that wasn't a particularly good look on on television. Um, and I don't think that he really comes across that well in those speeches. Um, in a way, he's a better a better writer than he is uh, a speech maker. Um, there is a, two different, a difference between the parties, though, I think, because um, with the Tories, you could personalise the rivalries. It's Theresa May, um, the sort of centre-right against Boris Johnson, who's now sort of positioning himself on the more sort of Brexiteer, um, further out to... The further right. The further right. The further right. Um uh, so you had that sort of rivalry in that dynamic. But with Labour, it feels a bit like we've well, got the person who's the more uh, hard left person in charge. But there didn't seem to be one figure to coalesce as a sort of rival to him. So you can't really personalise it in that way. It's difficult for sort of News at 10 headlines to say... X says something about Jeremy Corbyn and we're all sort well, of... Well, the Sunday Times, didn't they, had Boris versus Theresa, it's war. Yes, yeah, who, uh, who's it, Jezza versus... Who's, 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 who's facing off against Jezza? Well, that's the Chris perennial... <laughs> God, I hope not. That's the perennial problem for Labour's moderates is they don't have this figurehead to coalesce around and that was really palpable at conference. I don't know, Steve, what your impression was, but when I was in the main conference hall, things definitely felt subdued, particularly compared to last year in Brighton where Labour had just overperformed everyone's expectations at the election everyone was on a bit of a high the place where the action was happening was up the road at the world transformed which is the Did you get into that yeah I, I had a press pass where were you guys <laughs> <laughs> which which was the kind of corbinite and wider left fringe and at the world transformed and also at some of the events with the ippr and with younger people in the party it felt very fresh and energetic i didn't find that so much around the party self-described moderates although steve you might have got a different impression no i mean the moderates were nowhere and i think that that was the one interesting thing from this year's labor conference is that actually uh, the row between the different wings of the party is essentially over. You know, the the left and Jeremy Corbyn has won. The moderates have packed up. I saw Yvette Cooper in a bar once. I think that was it, which is, you know... You saw Stephen Kinnock doing our fantastic I event saw Stephen on... Kinnock, so, <laughs> I mean, yeah, they just, they just weren't really there. Actually, a lot of them actually weren't there. The one uh, potential interesting leadership thing that sort of bubbled up at Labour Party conference was who comes next after Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, there was essentially a sort of Angela Rayner versus Emily Thornberry, possibly versus Rebecca Long-Bailey uh, sort of uh, you know, speech off. Um, 
which I think some people thought, you know, at the start of the week was maybe won by Rayner and by the end of the week, won by Thornbury. Um, Thornbury's, um, she said, I was watching her speech and she said, what is it? No passeran. What was it? Was that something? Well, I had no idea what that meant. And well, it came across is, as bonkers again, like Boris. But could you explain? Well, it? this is the interesting thing about her speech in that it was... So no passeran is this uh, is a Spanish slogan from the 30s about um, the fascists shall not pass. You know, th- they shall not pass. Um, and it's sort of iconic now on the left or a certain fringe of the left. And she chanted this three times in the hall because she'd made this big thing about the Internazionale and the the brigade the international brigade that had gone to Spain to Spain to fight Franco and trying to link that in you know quite cleverly actually trying to link it in with what's happening today and then also the Labour Party therefore needs to uh, root at anti-Semitism its own party before it starts um, trying to, uh, to do the same elsewhere but as soon as she chanted that and everyone cheered I thought I'm not sure how this is going to play out outside of this hall. Likewise, it wasn't going to be noticed, was it? Well, likewise, when they had a debate on Palestine and hundreds of people took out Palestinian flags. Now, again, inside the hall, that was cheered. Were that to be shown on TV? I don't know, you know how many people would necessarily think that was you know, something that they, they'd be happy with. Yeah, Steve, so you wrote a piece um, earlier this year talking about how you'd resigned from the Labour Party because of the anti-Semitism issue. Do you think that moment when the they were, all the Palestinian flags were brought out. Do you think that was the party trying to take a sort of screw you attitude to um, to the issue, basically? Um, Are we going to have to explain the priorities ballot? I don't know if this is going a bit deep yeah. for us. <laughs> no, it's... So one of the things that was interesting was that, yes, so Labour members get to vote for four issues that they're going to talk about at Labour Party conference. Uh, and one of the four that they chose this year was Palestine. Um, more people voted for that than climate change, than for the war in Syria, uh, than for actually even Brexit, a whole host of other domestic issues as well. Um, and I think that was um, the membership essentially saying... Um, and I don't think this was necessarily them saying anti-Semitism doesn't exist in the party and the debate over anti-Semitism doesn't matter. I think, although some certainly were, I think they were trying to say, actually, we we genuinely care about the Israel-Palestine issue. Um, and some people think it's been uh, it's been hijacked by by others and that you now can't say anything you like about Israel. What was actually, I won't say good about the debate, but not terrible about the debate was that i think aside from one person there was nothing there that was actually uh in any way um problematic shall we say i, th- I think rio wolfson who was chairing the debate d- worked quite hard to kind of make mm. it productive in it and it and it was but, 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 but yeah. this is all quite inside stuff isn't it i mean yeah. my feeling from conference season as a whole is that actually people were all talking for better or worse about capitalism and um john mcdonald stood up and said a load of stuff he doesn't know how he'll pay for it it might not work but he had some ideas you know about um employee share ownership um uh, i spoke to quite a serious economist yesterday was saying you know this is the biggest act of expropriation ever you know it could be it could be a big deal but it's it's some it it feels flavor of the moment and then when you got to Birmingham, they were saying, oh, we haven't got any ideas how we're going to respond to this stuff. We're all lost in the inside weeds of um, of, of, of Brexit. And it feels like that actually the economy and economics is, um, after all that kind of 
um, you know, anti-Semitism, culture war stuff over the summer, like, has, has come back into focus a bit. Is this why we saw you walking down the street with a mug liberated from your hotel room, Tommy? You're taking a mug <laughs> <laughs> to your theft type stance on. Oh. I think you're right, Tom. And it's, it was interesting, actually, to hear Theresa May in her speech use a, a phrase that's been used by a lot of young people on the left in the past few years, which is that it's quite difficult to support capitalism when you have no chance of ever owning any capital. Um, and she was using this to then segue into a discussion about um, allowing councils to borrow to build, build more houses. There is an issue for the Conservative Party in trying to work out how to deal with some of these issues uh, that have emerged because of the last 10 years of of austerity um, and everything that's happened since the crash. And I think one of the really uh, interesting things that wasn't talked about at these conferences, weirdly, is uh, was the effects of Brexit. There was a lot of talk about Brexit, but... You know, whether that is uh, Theresa May's policies or whether that's the things that John McDonnell wants to do, there's this issue that we're not going to necessarily have the money to pay for it. You know, whatever your most optimistic forecast of, you know, the least worst Brexit possibility is, it's probably going to be a recession. So how do you actually pay for any of these things that they that they both want to promise? I mean, I quite clearly remember, Steph, like at conference 2008. So this was literally a week or two after Lehman Brothers had fallen down. The issue of the day, I think, was whether or not Bradford and Bingley should be nationalised. But there was another one of these things going on every day. And uh, up until that point, the Conservatives had been saying that they would match Labour spending totals on this, that and the other. And George Osborne took a very political um, decision that all of this new cuddly conservatism, hugger hoodie stuff was over in terms of the economy. And instead, his speech was about how the cupboard was bare. And it felt to me now, 10 years later, like the sort of McDonald approach was maybe that McDonald, I should say, uh, approach is that is the one that was like getting getting everyone talking, framing the debate. So the conference season ended with Theresa May saying, oh, those limits we put on how much councils can borrow to build housing, getting rid of those. We'll see the detail. And uh, austerity's over, effectively. The other thing Theresa May did was sing from a Tory hymn sheet that is 10 years old in basically trying to lay out, we are the party that will protect the economy. Labour are dangerous radicals who don't know what they're doing. And she hit Jeremy Corbyn primarily on foreign policy, but also on irresponsible spending. She said that we've never ended a Labour government without raising unemployment, things like that. Um, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily the truest fault line to draw but it is a fault line that has historically been quite successful for the Conservatives so however much the economic debate seemed to have moved over those two weeks she did end by thumping on the point that her party comes back to again and again and again which is we're the people you can trust with your money. But aren't they a bit aren't they in a bit of a pickle Samir if, if, if they don't know if they're saying there is no money left we can't afford anything or actually look we're going to build homes the bad times are over and as soon as they admit that the bad times are over then mcdonald can say oh well i'll spend more well that's true um but again come back to the sort of the brexit point and i think that's that's the, that's obviously the thing that overshadows uh, both conferences particularly the tories and we were talking earlier about it being a culture wars and then going on to sort of well technocratic discussions of how we run the economy and the nub with brexit is that it's both at the same time it's a culture war Mm. um, but it's also this hugely complicated 
um, we need Alex here really to explain it to us, um, whether we're Canada plus, Super Canada, uh, Norway plus or minus or whatever. Um, so Theresa May seems to be essentially going for the, I'm the responsible um, negotiator. The I'm going to actually go into, in contrast to Boris Johnson, um, who's just got pie in the sky ideas. I've got checkers. I've got a plan. But occasionally she feels the need to. And I think um, she repeated the phrase today about wanting respect from the EU. She feels the need to sort of draw on some of the sort of culture war energy to say, actually, I believe in this as well. And it's all about battling for Britain um, at the same time. So the bind that she's in is that the more she draws on that rhetoric, um, the more difficult it's going to be for her to sell a deal which is in fact going to be a compromise of checkers, the thing that Boris Johnson wants to chuck away in its present state. I think it's slightly hypocritical for Theresa May to say uh, we've treated the EU with respect when two days ago her foreign sector compared the EU to the Soviet Union. Um but it's interesting that they're sticking with that um, and at the same time upping their rhetoric uh, against against the Europeans. Um, I, I want to make one prediction on uh, something that's going to be remembered from this speech that's, that she will perhaps uh, regret, which is the line about austerity. Mm. Because she has essentially promised today that the end of austerity is coming. And we both met conservative councillors, conservative councillors who were worried oh. about the cuts they've got to implement this year and next. There, there was one conservative councillor, leader of a council, who was telling me he thinks that there will be at least four councils, conservative councils, within the next year that will go bust. Now, if she's promising the end of austerity, then she has to deliver that because every single time there is another cut or she says, actually, we can't afford this then everyone else will be able to stand up and say, well, hang on, you promised the end of austerity, so therefore are you cutting this because you were wrong and your maths are, are wrong, or are you uh, cutting this because you ideologically believe in a smaller state? And neither of those answers are going to be good for her. God, I mean, I think it's quite difficult when you um, look at the next few months. Obviously, Labour's not in a happy place. Most of the MPs hate the leadership. But when you look, Steph, at the kind of possibilities for November, December, January, the graver risks are on the Conservative side, aren't they? They are, although the way you're saying those months so significantly with the kind of looming possibility of an election behind is making me quite nervous. So <laughs> I kind of don't want to make too many predictions. December election, that's all, that's, we're all Everyone looking forward to that. December election. Yeah. Yeah, and Have we ever had a December election? Yeah, I think, well... 1918, I think, is December because it's the centenary of when women could over 30 could first vote coming up. Did and they that choose that so that people just wouldn't go out in the dark? <laughs> uh, I think it was just, at least that was because a war had just ended, so it was like it was the, it was the closest time oh, we could have an enough, election. Fair enough. Um, but I think particularly moving on to next summer, I'm, I mean, all of this again depends on Brexit and we'd, we'd need to bring Alex in. Um, but if we don't stop Article 50, by the time we get to next summer, I think it will be quite tricky for Theresa May to continue to be at their helm. Although people have survived worse things before in the Tory party. And just on that question about whether we are going to leave on March 29th, a few interesting things in the politics there. Most notably, I thought, was Boris Johnson indicating that he would be prepared to press pause, which of course is the thing that Theresa May vowed she couldn't 
wouldn't do to prove her Brexit credentials. She went to write into law the UK would leave the EU at 11pm on the 29th day of the third month of 2019. Um, I don't think it did go into law in the end because it was such a such a nonsense. But um, like she can't budge on that. And so if it does need to be a pressing of pause now that the, the leave side have raised that as a possibility... We might need to um, shuffle along and, and, and let someone else do the pressing of pause uh, before then, Steph. Well, this is something an enormous number of people who I spoke to at Tory conference, including MPs, um, but also people at Labour Party conference were saying is we need to have as detailed an agreement as possible if we're going to get it through Parliament, if we're going to get it past the public. And therefore, it makes sense to pause now to get a better deal later. Otherwise, you're so much more likely to end up with no deal, which I think there are people in the Tory party who may not be saying this publicly, but more people than you'd expect in the Tory party who really fear what the response to that would be from the public. Um, It sounds like one of the few people who is still hoping that we bide our time and career over the edges is Jacob Rees-Mogg um, but whether or not that... What was he like at conference? When I was at Tory last, Tories last year it seemed like there were sort of four Jacob Rees-Moggs because wherever you turned he was always there. I didn't see him but I saw a lot of his young followers who were quite... Did he? He smiled. Mogmentum. Mogmentum. There was less of a presence of, Mog at, uh, um, of Rees-Mogg at this at this conference I think than last year last year was his moment and he's hitched himself to Boris now hasn't he yeah can I just uh, raise one final quick thing just to scare everyone and that is the number of uh, sensible Tory MPs I spoke to who said they thought the only way to deliver Brexit was by having another general election and they genuinely think that that's the only way that it will get through so, uh, yeah, maybe we could have another December election. We're running out of time, but how does that help? Labour doesn't know what it thinks. The Conservatives don't know what they think. Well, so and they uh, have another hung parliament come back and then we just... Nothing We've has revealed changed. that democracy <laughs> can't sort it out and well, well, Here's the thing. I, I can sort of... So, I can see what Labour's offer would be at a general election. It would be, look, we will renegotiate a fairer deal, a jobs first Brexit, blah, 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 blah. Whether you believe it or not... That's what they can say and they can all and everyone can get behind. The thing I don't understand is what can the Conservative manifesto say, which all Conservative MPs can get behind. Now, if Theresa May were to win uh, a landslide victory, then it doesn't really matter because she'll be able to force through what she whatever she wants. If she has a majority of five or like now is relying on DUP, I've no idea whether an election that leads to Tory uh, government makes any difference whatsoever. So uh, that's the views from um, the prospect team. But now we're going to give you the chance to um, see what you think for yourself by zipping over to Birmingham to hear how things went on the Conservative conference floor.
showing you can stand up for Scotland without walking out of the UK. Or I could talk for days about all of the unseen stuff, the work that our hundreds of councillors are doing every day for their communities across the country, showing that contrary to our opponents' claims, conservatism isn't alien to Scotland, but it is of Scotland. Friends, I could talk a lot about all of this. But actually, what I want to talk about isn't the day-to-day -day of parliamentary speeches or council chamber business. I want to talk about what matters. Things that, when you're about to step back from the front line, for a bit, as I'm about to do, are perhaps a little easier to see. And I want to make a plea to look Hi, my name's Helen, I'm 24 and I'm from Scotland. I'm a huge fan of Ruth. Um, I think she's absolutely brilliant. Um, her new book's incredible as well, by the way, so go and buy that. Um, and I think it's really admirable that someone's willing to speak up about their mental health as well. And I think that anyone who is in the public arena and has a sort of large following, being able to speak about that gives people the confidence to speak about it themselves. And especially from a Tory perspective, if that's not something that a lot of people associate with the Tory party. So to be able to have someone um, say some, um, speak about their own mental health in such a, a passionate way really gives everyone sort of time to think about it and stuff as well and bring it to the forefront and something that everyone has to work on as well. My name is Bill Cash. Uh, I'm the Member of Parliament for Stone. Uh, I've been in Parliament for 34 years. I'm Chairman of the European Select Committee called the European Scrutiny Committee and I've been on that committee for 33 years and uh, I have campaigned uh, certainly since Maastricht referendum, Maastricht rebellion back in 1990s against integration into Europe, I'm against European government uh, and I'm in favour of the referendum we had, we got the right result and I don't think it's uh, checkers is, is remotely a good idea, it's quite appalling in my opinion I think, however, that the intrinsic contradictions between what Chequers represents, the effective transfer of power to other countries to legislate for us when we're not even at the table, is patently absurd to anyone who thinks about it. Uh, I think that there are reasons why that won't work.
Um, hi, I'm Anya. I'm 21. I'm from Northern Ireland, but I'm a politics, philosophy and law student in London. Um, and I'm really enjoying conferences. my first conference. So um, my kind of area, my niche is women in politics. So I've been doing a lot of those events and w events with um, Women to Win and CWU. Especially, it's especially important this year because it's the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. It's nice to sort of get to see, to hear and listen to things that you wouldn't see normally, like specific policy areas that really, really interest you. And it's a good way to get a sense of like community within the party. Um, I think it's a lot more united than I think the media would lead people to believe or even that I was expecting. Um, I think there's certain individuals that will say, you know, oh, you know, there's no unity here. You know, I don't agree with the prime minister or whatever, but that's not really how it is. The majority of people are in support of the prime minister. They're in support of where we are at Brexit at the minute. And I think that we're a lot more united than people think we are. Philip Hammond has a good grip on the economy, I think, and he's always reassuring and impressive. Ruth Davidson, of course, is a very stirring speaker, and we are deeply grateful to her for what she managed to do in Scotland. I'm surprisingly encouraged. I came to conference after a gap of three years, having been at conference regularly over the last... 20 years at least. I really came because I was rather angry with the way things were going. I'm surprisingly encouraged. Some speeches, as always, comprise lots of warm words, but we have had several very good speeches. The state of the party I want to see an increasing recognition that the party does not live in Westminster, but in every village, byway, alleyway, courtyard of our big cities. Dear Boris, I know him very well, in fact. I'm not sure that his current contribution is really very helpful. I appreciate his concerns and I certainly support his intentions that a Brexit should mean a separation from the uh, European Union. I think he's genuinely concerned about that too. Uh, the press likes to make out he's after the leadership. I don't think it's entirely that. He might have liked it if it came his way, but I doubt it would not anyway. But I think he's genuinely concerned about the Chequers arrangement. As he himself he has it. said, he which is, is forgotten, he's interested not in changing the Prime Minister, but in changing the policy. And many of us feel that that is the case. I'm not sure that what he's doing at the moment is terribly helpful publicly. He's gone rather far this time, I think. Some of his throwaway remarks. Not only be prevented 
we will not only be prevented by the Chequers deal uh, from offering our tariff schedules, we will be unable to make our own laws to vary our regulatory framework for goods, agri-foods and much more besides. And that is politically humiliating for a two trillion pound economy. And it occurs to me that the authors of Chequers risk prosecution under the 14th century statute of primunary, which says that no foreign court or government shall have jurisdiction in this country. It would mean... Look it up. Look it up. I really like that one. It would mean that UK business and industry, the entire economy, would be exposed perpetually to regulations that might have been expressly designed at the behest of foreign competitors to do them down. It would mean that whatever the EU came up with in future, banning the sale of eggs by the dozen, banning diabetics from driving, banning vaping, whatever, by all those uh, have been at least considered by Brussels. My name is Frank Langford. I'm with National Public Radio from the United States. It seems a very divided party. It reminds me a fair bit of some things we're seeing in the United States with the Republican and Democratic parties, which are both really fighting internally. It was interesting to be at Labor last week because even though they had a terrible row over anti-Semitism, there was a vibe there, as I'm sure you saw, where it did feel a little like a government in waiting and almost like they're hanging back to watch the Tories devour themselves. That was kind of my impression. I don't see it devouring itself yet, but I haven't seen enough yet. I've only been watching, I saw Phil Hammond's speech, it was actually a good speech. It won't make any news, but um, what I like from a policy perspective is talking about what the future is in terms of um, robotics and warning people who are workers what's coming, because I think that was a huge failure in the United States. Neither party told people what China was going to mean, what mechanization was going to mean, and we saw that play a huge role, a big role, in the 2016 election. I think what I find fascinating is the math, at least at the moment, the math doesn't seem to work any quite way. The European Union doesn't like checkers. A lot of people here don't like checkers. And it's really hard to see how Theresa May comes up with something that satisfies Brussels and her party. And she doesn't want to reach out to Labour, obviously, and do a deal with Labour to get it through. What's interesting about Johnson is he is clearly perceived in this country as intensely an intense careerist. That's how people see him, certainly here in, in the United Kingdom. Um, I watched him at the party conference last year, and he do, I can understand the popular appeal. Um, he's, he's erudite, he's well-educated, but he also sees he's funny, he says what's on his mind, and there's a little bit of Trump in there in terms of that appeal of someone who is so different from the very controlled American or British politician. Um, I would wonder how far he can go, given that there are a lot of people in peace who are not that pleased with him. And you certainly saw a lot of pushback, um, I guess, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, about his telegraph, his long, long piece in the telegraph, and sort of a sense that Boris is again, as he was right around the, uh, right after the referendum, looking for some kind of leadership role. 
as I know, the six years as Home Secretary dealing with the immigration system, we have, were able, when we were in the European Union, we were able to have our own rules for people from outside the EU, but not for people from inside the EU because of the free movement uh, rules. Free movement will end. These will be the immigration rules that will operate, and we have that maintain that commitment. What we've done, and we've actually taken advice from experts in this area as well, what we've done is said that in the future, when we're able to decide who should be coming to this country, we want to ensure that that decision is based on the contribution people will make. We, we retain that commitment to that target, and that's what we wrote. We are working to bring the overall numbers down. What this enables us to do is to have control uh, at our borders for those who are coming from the European Union as well as for those who are coming from the wider world. There's been an element that we've not been able to uh, control in the future. Well, hopefully until next, uh, early next year when the Brexit uh, situation gets resolved one way or another. Um, I think it would be wrong uh, if she did leave before then, before concluding something. But we shall see. Yeah, I've been to yes, I've been into the hall and things, and and I think the biggest thing talking to members here is it's all about loyalty, and we just want uh, everybody to rally round the prime minister and uh, to make sure that she gets a good deal for us in, in in Europe. And I think everything else has become a distraction, which is incredibly irritating for people. I campaigned to get her um, elected in the first place, and I have every faith she'll be here to 2022. She's she's a really good prime minister under very challenging times, and uh, and, and I think she's doing a good job. postcard from the Conservative Conference at Birmingham, which I hope you enjoyed. For much more on politics, arts, culture, be sure to visit our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk. I'm Tom Clark. My thanks to Steve Bloomfield, Steph Boland and Samir Rahim, who are all here in the studio. And I would recommend our October issue, which is in the shops now, with a cover story about how Twitter has ruined 
politics. Um, uh, all sorts of hideous things it's doing, it turns out. There's also a profile of the man of the moment, John McDonnell, and Alan Rusbridger, late of The Guardian, looks into what's wrong with Oxford University's entrance system. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do rate us and review us on iTunes. It really does help other listeners to find us um, and we'd be extremely grateful. The producer of this podcast was Jay Elwes, who, along with Alex Dean, put together our Tory conference soundscape that you just heard. And be sure to tune in again next week to the Prospects podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.